Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Sheep Thrills. Happy Thursday. We are officially halfway through February. It's 60 degrees outside, so it's, you know, global climate change, but I'm enjoying the weather regardless. Um, let's see. Today on Sheep Thrills, kind of a lot to talk about this week. Um, last week, I spent the entire episode talking about the uh, State of the Union. That's what it's called, State of the Union. And so I missed a lot of important things that happened last week. Um, and so we have a lot to catch up on this week from last week, which means we're going to be behind on things that happened this week. But we'll catch up eventually. And that's all good. Um, we, we, we do what we have to do. And this is, you know, I'm in charge. So whatever. Leave me be. Um... But anyway, today, on this episode, are we being invaded by aliens? Maybe. Like, probably not, but that would be really kind of typical if we were. So anyway, we're going to talk about that. Um, we are also going to talk about the earthquake that happened in Turkey and Syria last week. And then we're also going to get into a couple of important political updates that we got this week. Um, so with all that being said... It's going to jump right into it. So in terms of the alien invasion, like we're not being invaded by aliens, but um, I'm sure that kind of the, one of the bigger news stories last week that kind of came out right before the State of the Union. Oh, my God. Things are falling all over the place. I'm so sorry, guys. What is happening? OK, anyway. Um, sorry, I'm just like distracted. Anyway, <laughs> in regards to the alien invasion. Last week, before the State of the Union, big story came out that there was a Chinese spy balloon that was making its way across the country and ultimately got shot down um, in the ocean off of the Carolinas. Um, and so that started a whole big conversation about what the spy balloon was, like whether or not we were being surveilled by the Chinese. And if we were, you know, what were they actually looking for? What were they trying to acquire? And then throughout the week, um, multiple other similar-ish structures um, also got shot down over Canada, over Lake Huron, and over Alaska. So a couple different things were also shot down. So then people were like, hey, what the heck is going on there? Because we thought that this was an isolated incident, but it actually does not look to be isolated at all. Um, and it's actually like a lot going on. So... The debate around the first balloon was kind of, it's, it's kind of its own separate thing, although obviously there hasn't been all of that much information that has come out from the federal government about, like, what actually was going on. And that was a big part of the conversation was that, like, nobody, nobody knew what was going on and the government was not telling anybody, like, what exactly was happening in regards to these unidentified flying objects, dare I say. So specifically around the first balloon, the debate was around the fact that Biden and co knew about the balloons for a fairly long time uh, and like were tracking its progress across the country, but then only decided to actually shoot it down after it had literally gone all the way across the country. And so that's why I didn't talk about this because I didn't want to get into this whole thing. But if you saw pictures of Marjorie Taylor Greene with a big white balloon that she was holding at the State of the Union and tried to take into the, into, onto the floor of Congress, that would be why she was making some kind of commentary. Who knows? Do we ever know what, what kind of commentary Marjorie Taylor Greene is attempting to make? The answer is no. But that's, that's fine. Whatever. Um... So again, they only ended up shooting it down after it had literally traveled across the entire country. Um, and so that was, again, uh, not great. Nobody likes to hear that. Um, but again, there's so little information. And I think what you kind of pick up on throughout all of the commentary that's been done is that nobody really knows what's going on with these, with these vessels. And... Um, so there's not that much information that can be provided, especially because they hadn't seen the kind of technology before and they could only kind of analyze it after it had been shot down. Um, so we have more information about it now. 
Um, but again, since then, since that first balloon was shot down last week, last Saturday, I guess it was that it got shot down. Um, which, by the way, it's just hilarious to think about. Like, they shot it down with a missile, but I kind of like the idea of, like, Katniss Everdeen out there with, like, a bow and arrow, like, shooting down this balloon. Like, that's not how it was, but, like, I don't know. I think it's funny. Anyway, so then, since then, other similar balloons have been shot down, but were, like, structurally very different and had different capabilities. And so like not only do we kind of have no idea what they are but it's entirely possible that and this is something that the federal government has said it's entirely possible that these cases are like completely disconnected from each other have nothing to do with each other are just separate like we know that that first balloon was a surveillance machine it had a camera it had a satellite like we knew that it had surveillance capabilities and it was intended to be used for surveillance but the other balloons did not appear to have those capabilities and didn't have the same like structural elements that the first balloon had. So it does kind of appear that they may or may not be just like benign research or commercial objects, which is what this one article said. Um, so my, my thought when I first read that was, oh my God, this is all just a big, giant, stupid Super Bowl commercial. It's just a ploy. It's just a Super Bowl thing. It, like, it isn't, but it, it, it kind of feels that way in my heart and my soul. Um, so, again, it's entirely possible that these three instances aren't connected, that these other machines that they shot down were just completely disconnected, part of a commercial thing, not involved in any government, not meant to be used for surveillance in any sense. Um, but we do know that China has this spy balloon technology program and we know that this one specific balloon was almost certainly connected to that program, although these other balloons just are, are kind of random. And I honestly, I honestly think that it might be one of those things where um, they get so nervous that they just start shooting down anything. And that's where the big conversation around, oh shoot, are these aliens that are trying to make contact and we're just literally shooting them down with missiles. Which makes me laugh a lot because it's like, yeah, of course the aliens come to the United States to try to make contact and they can't even land because the United States government literally, literally shoots them down with a missile before they're able to land. And that's that that's it. That's our only chance of understanding the, the capacity of life in the rest of our solar system and the rest of our universe. The United States government has said that it has nothing to do with aliens, but like... Yeah, of course they do. When has when has the United States government ever been honest with us about anything that has to do with extraterrestrial life or space or aliens? None of it. They, they've never once been honest with us about that. I don't think that these are actually UFOs. But, again, I, I, I think the... This is a tangent. Already I'm tangenting. I'm nine minutes into the show. But I think it's hilarious to think about all of the different, like, alien invasion media we have and imagine if it was like literally a 10 minute long show they they set it all up the aliens try to land boom they're dead that's it and then they roll the credits like that's just very funny but anyway um what else do i want to talk about here so the other interesting kind of consequence of this particular situation is that Obviously, relations between China and the United States are already very tense, um, and they don't have good diplomatic relationships, and they've been, you know, kind of trying to rebuild those relationships, but there is just not a good relationship between the two countries, and they have a hard time, like this is something that I've read a lot, is that they, they have a hard time understanding each other's intentions. Like, the United States government has no idea what China wants has no idea what China can do. And kind of similarly, like, they just have a, like, a pretty distinct lack of communication or there's just, like, a lot of communication barriers between the two groups, which, you know, does not make foreign relations any easier. And so China did admit that that first balloon was from China, but they said that it was, quote, a harmless civilian machine that had gone off course. And they did issue a public statement expressing regret. Um, and this was after 
Secretary of State Anthony Blinken canceled a planned trip to Beijing. Um, so obviously this was, you know, already tense situation that they kind of increased the level of um, kind of tension between between the two countries. And again, the, the, the United States knows that China has this like surveillance program. Um, it's also interesting that, you know, the United, we talk about surveillance with the, with the U.S. all the time, but the U.S. has a big surveillance program. They're constantly doing surveillance in China. And so China has been trying to kind of keep up with that um, level of surveillance. I'm sorry. This is so funny. So I have a window next to me and I just watched this guy try to throw a paper towel, like a rolled up paper towel into the trash and he just missed completely. Sorry, I just got so distracted, but that was so funny. He was so confident. Um, if you're listening, man, that threw the paper towel, you'll get him next time. I'm so sorry. Um, you know what? The United States government missed with the first missile as well when they were shooting down one of the balloons. So, you know, we all we all miss. We all miss sometimes, but you'll get it next time. Anyway, okay. So... Right. The, the Chinese are attempting to push back on this surveillance that the United States government has been doing on them for years and years and years. And so obviously this this kind of this surveillance balloon technology is one of their first steps in attempting to do surveillance off of the coast of the United States and like in like obviously in the mainland. Um, and so this technology, which probably was just not very good technology because it failed the self-destruct like didn't work the whole mission failed and obviously that's very embarrassing for the chinese because now they don't have the they they lost control of the technology the united states is aware of the technology that they're using and like what they're trying to do and also something that i find very funny is that the um people from the Department of Defense or something said that they are quote unimpressed with the balloon's capabilities, which just makes me laugh because like, yeah, you really tried, you really tried to do something there, but actually your balloon is stupid and ugly, like wow, okay, um, so again they have this technology that's that's very political value politically valuable to them, and as tensions obviously increase between. The United States and China, it's potential that this this kind of technology has has wartime value. Um, and so now the United States has like a pretty strong level of understanding over what the technology is that they have and what they're planning to do with it moving forward. Um, and again, it's just not really I mean, whatever, we don't we don't know the full I don't know the full scale and scope of the, you know, China's surveillance technology. But as of right now, it's not kind of up to snuff with what the United States really what what the United States has been doing against China for so many years. Um, and again, like kind of thinking about the public opinion aspect of all of this is that surveillance in the United States, specifically foreign surveillance, is a very sensitive and very hotly contested issue in the United States. Um, Think about like all of the surveillance that happens internally and the Patriot Act and whatnot um, that we have we, we, we are contending with surveillance so much um, and international surveillance is something that people are very scared of and very sensitive about, specifically when you think about countries like China and like Russia, um, you don't uh, people in the United States, nobody in the United States wants to think about the fact that they may or may not be you know, being surveilled by a foreign power and that might kind of work against them in the future. And I think that's where a lot of the debate around TikTok comes from, too. We all know that TikTok is run by a Chinese company and we don't know the full scale and scope of, you know, the, the information that they're collecting. But we do know that they have a whole lot of information about all of our behaviors and all of our interests. Um, and they are collecting that information in some way or another. Uh, which is, you know, not great. Certainly not a good thing. I, I, I don't know. The, the, so that level of surveillance is just something that we are hyper aware of in the United States because we've dealt with it internally. We know how bad that level of surveillance can be. Um, and it's also something interesting that I read was the idea of 
acknowledging the fact that like China is surveilling us and that kind of cementing China as a kind of enemy, like public enemy of the United States, like kind of giving evidence to the fact that China is our enemy, they are not our ally, et cetera, et cetera. And when the public is thinking about another country as an enemy, it limits the amount of conversation and negotiation that can happen between leaders. Because if you like think about, oh, well, let's see if Biden is going to like negotiate with the Chinese and like do these negotiations and go come to the table with them, et cetera, et cetera. People like kind of public opinion, if they see, oh, China is our enemy, we don't want to negotiate with China. Um, that becomes, oh, well, now Biden is anti-American because he's going to give concessions to the Chinese and they are our enemy and they're doing surveillance on us and we can't ever work with them. Um, and of course, like public opinion, whether we like it or not, like does inform public policy in a lot of ways. And so having this like direct, tangible evidence that China is our enemy kind of destabilizes that relationship even further, which is certainly not a good thing because that relationship has been very tense and very bad and China is becoming more and more powerful. Um, so certainly not a good thing. Pretty unfortunate that that spy balloon went off course. Here's another conspiracy theory. Here's another conspiracy theory that I have not read, and it is a conspiracy theory, that the, like, we, we think that the, the spy balloon went off course because it failed, and then we know that the self-destruct didn't work, etc. So what if it didn't actually go off course, and they purposefully sent, like, subpar bad technology into the, like, mainland United States in order to kind of distract the like intelligence community from uncovering the actual technology that they have behind the scenes hmm what about that give that one a think or we're being invaded by aliens one or the other there's probably no other solution okay let's move on from conspiracy theory hour um, next, I want to talk about this is another uh, event that happened last week, although it's still kind of um, things are still coming to light. It's still all unraveling. There's still rescues that are happening. Um, but there was a massive earthquake that happened last week in Turkey and Syria. And as of now, over 37,000 people have died and tens of thousands of people have been injured. Um, and I swear, when I first read that number, when I was like kind of doing this research, I was like, 37,000, that has to be the number of people that were injured, not literally died. Um, and it's just, it's like, it's, it's almost impossible to like wrap your head around that number of people dying in a, in a, in a natural disaster. It's just like an astronomical number. Um, and this is the, the deadliest earthquake in the world since uh, Japan's earth, 2011 earthquake. Oh, I'm going to sneeze. Excuse me. You didn't have to listen to the sneeze because I turned the mic off. I'm good at this. I, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a producer. Okay. Anyway. Um, again, this is the deadliest earthquake since the 2011 Japan earthquake. Um, 5,600 buildings across southeast Turkey collapsed. Uh, ten provinces are under a state of emergency, and they will be for the next three months. So it's just a completely, like, widespread, um, like, true catastrophe. Um, incredible amount of death and injury and destruction, um, which is certainly not great. And we don't have all of those similar, as far as I'm aware, we don't have uh, a lot of those similar numbers from Syria because there's just a lot less centralization there because part of it is currently being held by rebel groups and they have a lot less access to that kind of communications technology. So I'm sure that, that those body counts will continue to go up and up and up as things kind of start to clear out and they're starting to able to they're starting to be able to kind of clear out some of that rubble. Um, and so specifically thinking about Turkey, um, there was a pretty significant, like part of the reason that the death and injury count is so high is because there was a pretty significant lack of disaster response in Turkey. Um, there were no military forces sent to affected areas and residents weren't able to get in contact with the kind of like 
Turkish FEMA equivalent, which was called the Turkish Disaster and Emergency Management Presidency. So again, basically nobody, these, you know, when, if you think about like a natural disaster in the United States, like they immediately send the National Guard, they send FEMA, like they kind of operate those things pretty quickly. And they were not, they, in Turkey, they did not do those things. It was really hard to get in touch with the people that they needed to get in touch with. Um, and so emergency teams didn't arrive in time because, uh, you know, immediately after this earthquake happened, there are people who are trapped under the rubble. Emergency teams didn't arrive fast enough to save people who were initially trapped under that rubble because if that response time had been higher, they would have been able to kind of save that first round of people. Um, and because the emergency response was so slow, that's that's part of the reason why the body count was so high. Um also very interesting is the way that the president has been kind of dealing with this situation in Turkey. And he has claimed that it was, quote, like impossible for them to be prepared for a natural disaster of this size. But there's also been a larger conversation about the fact that the president's main focuses since the earthquake have been around censorship and political goals rather than actually operating an effective natural disaster response. So there have been like a couple of different instances in which there have been people who've been critical of the government and they've been basically taken down, removed from society in some way, um, kind of in an effort to say, oh, well, we don't want you to undermine our natural disaster response. But that very clearly, it's very, very clearly been a censorship issue rather than anything else. And so there are a couple of examples of this. One is that uh, the government limited access to Twitter um, kind of right after the earthquake happened. And this, I read a Time article, which I'll link in the show notes, um, but they people were criticizing the government response because as I talked about, the, the, res- you know, the, the response time was very slow. Um, and so they did kind of limit access to Twitter Um, which, you know, limited the amount of contact that survivors on the ground had with others, had with emergency services, uh, or just, you know, you go on Twitter in order to understand kind of the scope of an emergency situation. Uh, We've all done it um, because it is a central, it's a centralization of communication for a lot of people. And they claimed that it was to stop disinformation from spreading. Um, And there is an interesting side conversation about which maybe we'll have at a later date, but about the role of the government in stopping the spread of disinformation um, and the fact that basically the Turkish government federalized Twitter <laughs> and kind of took away Twitter to say, oh, well, they're spreading misinformation about this earthquake as opposed to saying, oh, well, no, you were censoring people who are critical of the governmental response to the earthquake. Um, So it's very interesting to consider the kind of very slippery slope from misinformation moderation to the government controlling social media and deciding what can and cannot be said online. Um, But anyway, so that was one particularly egregious, I think, situation uh, is that they did like kind of limit the use of Twitter. Um, They also carried out arrests and arrested people who posted, quote, provocative posts related to the earthquakes. Um, I didn't see any examples of these posts, so I don't really know. But again, people who are being critical of the government and the government's response to the earthquake, again, kind of being removed from society. And again, you imagine getting arrested for posting. Not great. Um, And then kind of most importantly, I mean, not most importantly, but additionally importantly, is that there there is some evidence that the Turkish government was being somewhat negligent with their infrastructure practices. So there was a pretty bad earthquake. So Turkey is like right, like right on a fault line, basically. Um, So it's very prone to earthquakes and bad earthquakes because it's not like it's like kind of off to the side of a fault line, like it is on top of a fault line, which like, I don't know, I don't think we should be building there in the first place, but I guess we do what we do. Um, But so there was a really bad earthquake in 1999. And after that, they basically passed a whole lot of new regulations and earthquake protection legislation, basically changing the infrastructure code to make sure that earthquakes were going to be able to 
or make sure that buildings were going to be able to withstand the level of earthquakes that they experience in Turkey. But there's a lot of evidence that many of the newer buildings were not built up to code, and many of the older buildings were not updated in order to kind of fulfill the that, those regulations that were passed 25 years ago. Um, and it's what's particularly interesting is that construction is a very substantial industry in Turkey. So the government is is sometimes turns a blind eye to those regulations in order for kind of more construction to happen, um, kind of make sure that things are more cost effective and all that. Um, and so even though they pass these regulations in order to avert a kind of disastrous situation like we just saw this week, um, they kind of turn a blind eye to those things just to make sure that they can continue to build. Another interesting thing is that there is pretty significant economic differences between East and West Turkey. Um, and so the infrastructure standards are very different. So areas of the country are just not as economically developed. And so they're, the, the kind of government there is not pushing as hard for those same regulations that they're pushing on other areas. Which means that despite the fact that there was things put in place, they were not applied. And so, and they were certainly not applied evenly across the country meaning that an earthquake of this magnitude caused significant structural damage as well, which is going to take a, a long time to rebuild and, you know, update. So, obviously, this made the effect of the earthquakes a lot more severe, and it also affected the level of medical attention that people were able to receive. Um, multiple maternity centers collapsed, and multiple were um, completely destroyed by the earthquake, so... They even weren't building hospitals up to these earthquake codes, um, which is certainly not excellent. Um, and again, kind of going back to that governmental response, not only are people now criticizing the actual emergency response in Turkey, they're also criticizing the kind of why, why things were able to happen the way they were. If there are regulations in the books to avoid these kinds of situations, why did it happen? And who's responsible for turning those blind eye, like turning that blind eye to those regulations that currently exist? Um, and how can we kind of avoid those things happening in the future? Like where where is the corruption? Uh, and who's getting a who's getting a payout from the um, from like the construction agencies um, in order to make sure that they can bypass those regulations? So that's very interesting. Um, and then. Of course, on the other hand, talking about the impact in Syria, of course, we don't we, we know that obviously the impact in Syria is very, very bad. And we also know that it's particularly bad in areas of um, areas of Syria that are in like a rebel held region who have limited access to aid in the first place. Um, they don't have access to the same level of resources. They're pretty much cut off communications-wise. Um, and so we do know that like that portion of the country is pretty much in dire straits um, because they are just they're just not integrated into the rest of the um, the rest of the country and the rest of the region. And of course, this brings up a very important question once again uh, that we definitely had a lot, had this conversation a lot last year, and I'm trying to think about how much I talked about it on the show. I just took a class where we talked about it a lot. Um, but the question of humanitarian aid, and we have a limited amount of humanitarian resources and volunteers and money, and how are we distributing those resources between emergencies? And like how much, how many of, like how much money is going to go to Syria? How much is going to go to Turkey? You know, we always bring up the example of the war in Ukraine, um, just because it's, it's kind of a very clear cut. This is an emergency that's happening in Europe. Um, and how much attention and funding and support has gone towards supporting Ukraine over other countries that don't have white people in them. Um, that are going through like similar civil wars, um, kind of grand emergencies as well. And so it'll be interesting to see the way that um, humanitarian aid is being divided amongst all these different areas. Um, 
and are people like like are, are people going to be able to raise enough money and how are we going to get that aid through all of the barriers to those rebel controlled areas in Syria uh, and how are we going to kind of divide up those resources um, and then of course kind of putting a band-aid on the issue how are we then going to go back and deal with the root problem of kind of corruption in the government and infrastructural shortcomings that exist not only you know in Turkey and in Syria but also I think that the infrastructure in the United States can withstand uh, something like this like probably not um, and so kind of dealing with those kinds of weaknesses all across the world is going to be an important an important question as we look into the future so whew. Here we go. Moving into some domestic politics. We've got some fun political announcements to talk about. Um, first, we're going to talk about, ready for this, guys? Talking about the 2024 presidential election. Strap in, folks, because we are going to be talking about this forever and ever and ever. And I know we're two years out, but who cares? We're still going to talk about it because we have to talk about it. Um, so we have a new announcement of a campaign. Nikki Haley, former UN ambassador under Trump, UN, UN ambassador under Trump, and also the former governor of South Carolina, um, is the first Republican candidate to officially announce that she is running for president against Donald Trump. And now I'm going to see if I can actually fix my computer so I can play a little bit of the announcement video because it's very interesting. I am just going to vamp while I do this. Um, we knew that Nikki, ha oh, this is maybe going to work. We knew that Nikki Haley was going to be running for this office. Um, so this is just kind of a, we, we knew this was happening and now it's happening. Um, but I'm going to play a little bit of this video. It's like three minutes long, so I'm not going to play the whole thing, but it's called Strong and Proud. Nikki Haley's campaign announcement video. The railroad tracks divided the town by race. I was the proud daughter of Indian immigrants. Not black, not white. I was different. But my mom would always say your job is not to focus on the differences, but the similarities. And my parents reminded me and my siblings every day how blessed we were to live in America. Some look at our past as evidence that America's founding principles are bad. They say the promise of freedom is just made up. Some think our ideas are not just wrong, but racist and evil. Nothing could be further from the truth. I have seen evil. In China, they commit genocide. In Iran, they murder their own people for challenging the government. And when a woman tells you about watching soldiers throw her baby into a fire, it puts things in perspective. Even on our worst day, we are blessed to live in America. I was born and raised in South Carolina, so I have seen the very best of our country. People here threw out the old, tired political establishment and demanded accountability for their tax dollars. Industry reports called us the beast of the Southeast, which I love. That's all you get. That's that's all you get of that. If you want more, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes. Um, <laughs> the visuals, the visuals are great. Again, this is a podcast and a radio show, and so you can't actually see the visuals. But my personal favorite was right in the beginning, and she's walking, you know, down the railroad tracks, and there's a sign that says Crossroads. Oh, oh, look at that visual. Who came up with that? Give them a raise. Um, so again, we knew that Nikki Haley was going to be running for president. We've known it for years. We've been memeing on it for years. I don't know how long this meme has been going around Twitter, but I have been seeing it for at least a year, if not more. Of uh, it's like a fake news screenshot of Nikki Haley, and the like. The cryon is Nikki Haley suspends presidential campaign after coming in third in South Carolina. Um, <laughs> 
which is great. And we've been seeing it forever. And that is literally exactly how this campaign is going to work out. Um, but as you heard heard from her um, kind of the first minute and a half of her um, announcement video, which, by the way, three and a half minutes is too long for an announcement video. If you can't articulate your point in one minute, I don't, I don't want to hear it. We've got short attention spans. Make your point in 60 seconds. That's what I want. Anyway, um, she is trying to set herself apart in a lot of ways. The Republican Party, the country, is literally at a crossroads. And here we are kind of trying to change the change the path and change the future of the Republican Party. Nikki Haley is a young woman, not, I mean, younger than Donald Trump. She's still middle-aged, but she's, like, pretty. So <laughs> she's the daughter of immigrants. She is, so she's a, you know, she's an Indian woman. Um, and so there's obviously, like, setting that apart. She's also, you know, a lot more in line with the more traditional... I guess, like, pre, I mean, I don't even want to say pre-Tea Party, but, like, I guess in terms of rhetoric, like, pre-Tea Party, Republican Party, that was, like, somewhat sane and rational that we have not seen or experienced in the past however many years. Um, and so, again, she's, she's, she's pitching herself as uh, a new generation of the Republican Party, as a new kind of way forward, a new kind of rational thought um, for the party. And it's not going to go anywhere. And that's unfortunate, but it is what it is. And I'm going to admit something right now that I think I've admitted before. But if I was still in eighth grade, I would be, oh, eating the Nikki Haley campaign up. I'd be like, she is it. She's going to be the first female president. I'm living for Nikki Haley. Um, I was a big Carly Fiorina stan when I was in my eighth grade Republican era, and it would have been the exact same thing. I would have been like, oh, I love this woman who's going to come in sixth in the primary. Like, she's the greatest. Um, <laughs> whatever. Leave me, leave me alone. We've all stand weird, bad politicians. Um, so anyway, again, she's claiming to be a new voice, a new generation for the Republicans. I think, but she's still feeding into a lot of the the rhetoric that I don't know is necessarily like going, well, I don't know. I don't know. I can't speak for Republicans. I'm not a Republican. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> if you couldn't tell. Um, the idea that racism is not a systemic issue in our country and it's an individual choice and, you know, people in our country may be racist, but we are not a racist country. That, I think, is actually the most successful way that the Republicans are able to articulate that argument. Like, this screaming and hair-pulling about critical race theory, I think, is going to lose people a lot. This level of rhetoric and this kind of distinction, which is a lot more rational and can make a lot more friends, I think is, is a... Straight up rhetorically, I don't agree, but rhetorically, it is a lot better of an argument. And it's in fact so rational that that's why she's going to come in sixth place and drop out in South Carolina. <laughs> um, so the question is, first of all, is she actually going to be a new voice for the party? And is she going to be able to stand up to that Trump wing of the party? Like you put her and Donald Trump next to each other. Uh, in a debate, and it's going to look exactly like it did in 2016, and she's not going to get any traction. Um, and that's a that's a that's a pretty important distinction there. Um, is that she claims that she is a new direction for the party, but I don't think that she actually pulls it off when push comes to shove. And that's what a lot of the discourse has been as well, not just by the silly silly people on Twitter, um, but also kind of by experts and pundits um, saying, yeah, maybe she'll be the vice president. Maybe she'll work her way into, uh, you know, another cabinet position. Um, but she just doesn't have enough clout. She doesn't have enough backbone necessarily to truly stand up to that wing of the party. It's also her argument, her entire thesis, her entire kind of take is that the Republican Party is ready for a rational candidate. 
and they're ready to go back to what they once were. And that isn't necessarily the case. Uh, There's very little evidence to suggest that the Republicans want a rational candidate, which is like tough to hear. But I don't think that the Republican Party is going to be able to rally around a candidate like Nikki Haley. Fine, whatever. Um, And all of these candidates are very clearly trying to resist Trump without ever saying his name. Um, Which is also a pretty important point that he's like Voldemort. Like they don't ever want to say his name. They just kind of want to put him as a figurehead because they don't want the backlash that's going to come with, first of all, him being crazy on, on Truth Social, but then also they all backed him during his presidency, that they don't want people to come back and say, oh, well, you're such a hypocrite. You said this, this, this during the Trump administration, and now you're coming back and saying that actually you were wrong about all of those things. Um, so that's a fairly important point as well, that she's saying, oh, well, we need a new generation, but she's also never really going to come out and criticize Donald Trump except for maybe by saying, oh, well, it's time we need a younger, newer leader. Um, She's never going to criticize his policy. She's never going to kind of come out against his his behavior. She's never going to comment on January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. So it's so early to be starting with these presidential campaigns. I'm I'm already exhausted, and it's been uh, one day since Nikki Haley (laughs) announced this campaign, two days Um, So the next year and a half is going to be objectively very, very painful. But the brain rot of this Republican primary is going to be real. And I just need you all to buckle in, be aware of that, like just get ready for the ride because it's going to be intense. Um, So let's talk a little bit now about the lay of the land in terms of the Republican primary as we see it now. So at this point, we know that at least four candidates have declared that they are definitely running or probably running. Um, So we know Donald Trump has announced, Nikki Haley has announced. We also know like pretty clearly because they've either launched exploratory committees or we just know that it's going to happen. Um, Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis are probably running. We also know that Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence are likely going to be running, although I haven't heard as much about either of those. Um, So It's looking like it's going to be another very busy slate of candidates. If you remember the 2016 primary campaign, you'll remember that that busy slate of candidates was the reason that Donald Trump won in the first place. Um, Or part of the reason why he won in the first place was it, it was just so many, so many people that nobody knew where to focus on. And so they focused on Donald Trump. And so, you know, people have been saying that that busy slate, a busy field with Trump in it, is probably going to be good for Donald Trump again. Um, there, you know, he's going to be able to kind of build up that same base. He's going to be able to kind of divide and conquer a little bit. Nobody is going to get that same level of traction as he is able to get. So, are you guys ready for 2016 part two? Because I sure am not. I really don't want to. I don't want to. But it's fine. Um, So what is, the the question becomes, with this big slate of candidates, with the kind of range of people who are running and their various personalities and rhetorical forms, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, what is the Republican Party prepared to do? What direction are they prepared to go? Um, It's going to be a major topic of conversation throughout this campaign of, are they really prepared and capable of throwing off the Trumpy side of the party? Are they ready to go back to some level of rationality? um, Or are they going to kind of keep going the way that they're going? And that's, there's two parts of that argument. One is what the politicians are able and prepared to do. And two, what the voters are willing and prepared to do. Um, And I think it's going to come down to a lot of polling of like, if Donald Trump is winning in the polls for get kind of against this big slate of candidates during the primaries, things are going to go farther to the right again. It's it's and it's going to kind of continue down the same path that we saw in 2016. I also think 
whichever Republican candidate wins the nomination in 2024, that's going to cement the future of the party. Like, that's just going to be it. There's going to be kind of no walking back from that decision that the Republican Party is making. Like, I think this is, like, we always say this, but I do think that this primary campaign is probably going to be the most consequential for the future of our politics in general in the United States, the kind of the future and the fate of the two-party system is going to be really dependent on who the Republicans choose this time around. So that's going to be a big conversation, and we will probably talk about it every week from here to the end of the semester. And Nikki Haley, I wish you the best of luck, and I will see you in South Carolina. Okay, last but not least kind of short little story that I want to talk about is that, drumroll please, Dianne Feinstein is officially retiring from the Senate at the end of her term. Uh, she is still serving out to the end of 2024, and then she is officially retiring from Congress. She has been in the Senate since 1994. Uh, she is so old and yeah, she's just very, very old. And so, you know, people have been talking about her retirement for years and years. Uh, when she filed her paperwork to run again in 2024, people were like, what are you doing? What's going on? Um, it was actually very funny when I saw her statement on Twitter that she was resigning. I was like, oh my gosh. But then I remembered that like a couple months ago, maybe not, maybe a full year ago, honestly, because it was over some break. It was over the summer or it was over Christmas break this year, last year. Um, some Twitter person posted a fake statement and, like, changed their display name and changed their profile picture. And I retweeted it. I did the whole thing. I got fake newsed. I got fake newsed. Um, and so I was very nervous. I was like, I am not going to be fake newsed again. I am going to make sure that this is actually a real thing. And so I was like looking at the account. I was like making sure that I wasn't getting trolled. Um, but yeah, no, she's officially resigning. Um, and this was a long time coming because, again, she is so old and also kind of losing it. Um, in fact, when one of, a reporter on the Hill asked her to comment on her, uh, on her retirement, she goes, oh, well, you know, I haven't made a decision about that yet. And her staffers were like, man, we, we put the statement out two hours ago. Like it's, it's, it's done. Um, so she clearly has not like been in charge of her office for a long time. And again, we talked about, oh, what was it? Like Vanity Fair or something that put out that piece last year, um, about her and about her history and everything. That was a really good profile. I'll link it again if I can find it. Um, but she just has not been in control of her office for a long time and she very clearly like has not doesn't have a huge grasp over what's going on um so it's it's time for her to move on and again we talked about a lot last week of the fact that there is kind of no new guard uh for the democratic party senator from california pretty big pretty important position and there's a lot of people that like i know their names and have some level of recognition on a national level but winning this Senate seat could completely change the course of um, the Democratic Party and could very easily set up an, a kind of a future presidential candidate. And so far, there are a lot of people running for that seat who are, again, big names, and I'm sure more and more will declare because, again, it's we're, we're a year and a half out from those elections. Um, so as of now, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter and Barbara Lee are all running for that seat. Um, it's going to be a high profile race, obviously. Adam Schiff has a pretty good amount of name recognition from the impeachment trials and from January 6th trials. Um, Katie Porter has a lot of name recognition because of her role in House Oversight. She's the one with the whiteboard, like writing things down and kind of embarrassing people in front of Congress. Um, so she has she's gone viral a couple of times. So people really do know her name. Um, and Barbara Lee also has just been in Congress for a long time and people know her name. She's a she's a she's a heavyweight in Congress. Um, and so, again, with with this kind of high profile nature of the race, the fact that we have high profile Democratic Congress people running for the seat, it is going to kind of turn into an opportunity for uh, kind of a, 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 some something of a coronation of 
a future leader of the Democratic Party. So I think that that'll be very interesting to see how that race goes. It'll also be particularly interesting because um, of the way that elections run in California. So they do a jungle primary uh, where they have everybody run, no matter your, your party affiliation, and then they have a top two general election. So it could be Adam Schiff and Katie Porter who get the top two number of votes, um, and then they are going to run against each other in the general election. Um, so that's very different from the, you know, it could be a Republican and a Democrat running against each other. Like, it's almost certainly going to be two Democrats running against each other for the seat at the end of the day. Um, so it could end up being a very high-profile D versus D election. Um, so we will definitely have to pay attention to that Um and again, pay attention to like how the those congressional dynamics shift based off of who wins. Um, yeah, because those are both both big names in Congress. So, okay, we got a couple more minutes left, so we're gonna do our fun news story of the week. This also happened last week, but I think that it's great, and I want to talk about it. Um, the Bagel Caucus emerged in in Congress. Bagel. Did I say Bagel Congress? Bagel Caucus emerged in Congress last week. Um, Representative Dan Goldman, Goldman, who is a member of Congress from Brooklyn, um, has been, you know, having conversations about the fact that not enough people in Congress have had a true New York bagel, real bagel. And so he brought in bagels from a couple different places in Brooklyn, and he served them to everybody in Congress. And these pictures were very funny. It was like a line like stretched all the way down across the hallway. It was staffers, it was reporters. Um, And you know, I think everything that happens in Congress is so heavy all of the time. Um, But it's sometimes fun to see people just be goofy and eat a bagel together. Um, And people were also mad because they, at the end, they end up having to like cut the bagels into quarters because there were so many people who wanted a bagel. And then people were like, how dare they cut the bagels like that? Like that is like you're talking about a true bagel and you're cutting it like that. Um, and they had to like release it. I mean, it was like a goofy statement, but they released it and they're like, you know, like there was just such a high level of interest that we had to, you know, defy some of our principles. But now we know for future bagel caucus sessions, like we'll make sure to order more. Um, so just fun. I always like it when um, members of Congress do something with their local delicacies. Makes me giggle. But that was a big episode. We covered a lot today. Um, So with all that being said, thank you guys so much for listening as always. Um, If you want to follow the show on Instagram at Cheap Thrills Radio, on Twitter at Cheap Thrills GW. Um, Yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Have an excellent week. Um, enjoy the weather, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I will talk to you all next week. Have a good one, guys.